Welcome to the SeaWorld, the Conservatives podcast. Today we're talking about portfolios. I'm Jenna Mathiasson, an objects conservator based in South Yorkshire. I'm Chloe Rumsey, an objects conservator based in Greater Manchester. And I'm Christina Rizek, an objects conservator based in Cambridgeshire. Yeah, welcome Hi. to the show everyone. So today we've got a special guest host with us. <gasps> Julia, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi, my name is Julia Boyska. I'm a new paid news conservator based in Manchester. Very cool. Welcome to the show. Yeah, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. We were going to talk about portfolios today, but first I yeah. thought we'd do a little bit of news. <gasps> we have news? Well, we have news. Why not? Uh, I, I was going to say a couple of episodes ago, we mentioned that we were going to do a meetup at the Icon 19 conference in Belfast. Which we're also at. Yes, Christina's at twice. <laughs> Because check you out. <laughs> anyway, we've teamed up with the uh, Emerging Professionals Network for ICON, so ICON EPN group, to do a meetup together. And it will be Thursday, the 13th of June, from about 7.30 at uh, Granny Annie's Kitchen, which is right next to the Belfast Waterfront Conference Centre, pretty much. We would love to see you there. If you want to come, come. If you want to come out and have a couple of drinks with us, then you are so, so welcome. And we would love to see you there, basically. So excited. Yeah. I also want to throw out there that ICOM, so that's with an M, not with an N, are working on the new definition of what a museum is. This is kind of a work in progress for them, how to define a museum. Um, And there's been some interesting debates in the museum community about what a museum should indeed be, Mm -hmm. what, how we define it. And that sort of thing. And I'm honestly constantly a little bit fascinated that collections seem to be a very dirty word right now. (laughs) That's, yeah. I mean, I I guess that's Mm. a debate we shouldn't really be having right now because like that could, that could be an episode in and of itself. Yeah, let's make that an episode. But but I do find it very fascinating that obviously, obviously it's all people based on by democratizing museums and all that stuff. But it feels very much like collections don't even get to be in the definition anymore because mm. that's... What better tool to do that than with... Well, um, yeah, that's how I feel. Historical that's not how other people feel, but there you go. But yeah, they're working on a new definition and I'm very curious to see what that will boil mm-hmm. down to. Does anyone else have any news? We're recording on the 5th of May and yes. last recorded at the end of March. So the big thing that happened in between is obviously the fire at Notre oh, Dame yeah. Cathedral in Paris, which kind of still feels like massive news, but also kind of feels a bit like old news now because it was, I guess, getting on for the three weeks ago. Yeah. yeah, my perception of it was that whilst it was happening, there was a huge push to donations for the repair and everything because no one knew how bad it would be. And I don't know what the updated forecast i suppose of the damage but i think a lot of the the really really old stuff survived didn't it i mean the, it seems uh, like they did get a lot out i haven't seen a formal report on what they actually no. got out but they because they had good emergency planning yeah. and good drills with you know local fire crews then yep. they got stuff out they knew what to do mm-hmm. which was excellent to hear mm-hmm. uh, obviously the devastation is quite massive it's difficult to appreciate from afar but the, all you can really tell i suppose is there's just as much scaffolding as there was before (laughs) and it doesn't have a spire anymore and it has significantly less roof um that's about what you can see from the ground yeah um and then there are lots of sad people so that's that's the update on that at the moment but yeah it does seem like they've got donations coming out of their ears uh, and if anything this, <laughs> yeah. this has highlighted the need for skilled stonemasons and stuff like that which is you know a trade um, that 
isn't going super strong anymore. So there's been a certain amount of awareness about how um, heritage job skills, the old style ones, are very much still necessary and still good to have around. So I suppose in some ways that's kind of a positive that it's kind of gotten people thinking about, oh, actually skilled stonemasons is still a thing that we need. It's but, not yeah. it's not all concrete blocks and prefabs. It's when this sort of thing happens, we need those people. In between it episodes. also highlighted to me, I just want to say that there's money out there if people love the thing enough. Oh, uh, yeah. And it is mm. like, it's obviously brilliant, absolutely brilliant that people do sort of rise up and support but also you know there's been so many things that have been damaged and they might not be maybe as romantic as Notre Dame but they're still of huge importance so I think that's something that we need to explore as a sector what what it is that they want to fund and yeah I mean how to communicate it is a really good point because I feel like entirely by by chance I think there was a BBC article on the same day as the Notre Dame fire broke out about a fire damaged church somewhere in England, right? But like a parish church, you know, like mm. a really old medieval building that was damaged by fire and how they really struggled to raise any funds for, you know, repairs or for anyone to care. The the contrast yeah. between that and people throwing like millionaires having a bidding war over who could give the most money to Notre Dame at the same time as it was still on fire. You know, like it yeah. was like the yeah. contrast was so dramatic. I've got two points really about that. And mm. one is that I think with Notre Dame, it's obviously it's an iconic building and so on, but I think people were shocked by it because so many people have been to visit it yeah, as well. Yeah. So anybody who goes to Paris will probably go and visit Notre Dame as well. And, and I mean, it, it became a, a kind of very minor meme almost on Twitter, that the um, idea of people being shocked about it because they'd been to visit it and putting up a photo of them in front of the yeah, building, yeah, yeah. whatever. And, and, you know, I saw some people satirizing this in a kind of, um, oh my God, I can't believe Notre Dame is on fire. I was there only five years ago. Kind of, yeah. You know, that kind of yeah. People, people want to make that kind of connection and I think where they have that kind of personal connection it's always going to be easier to find support for yeah. restoration yeah. efforts no, but the other thing I also saw and this is also on Twitter in particular I saw a bit of a backlash against this because as Jenny says there was this kind of bidding war with people yeah. giving vast sums of money for this and I saw a big backlash against that with people saying it's only a building why aren't these people giving money for climate change efforts because at the I same time you know well, we had yeah, the, yeah. the huge publicity for things like Extinction Rebellion and yeah. so on and there are all the climate protests and so on so I think for a lot of people it became this quite kind of unsavory contrast mm. between what is ultimately just a building yes it's a piece of immensely significant cultural heritage and also if you're a Catholic it's a very important part of your religious heritage and for Paris it's a hugely iconic building and so on and I'm not denying that but all of these people falling over themselves to give vast sums of money for what is just a building when there are other areas that struggle to get exposure or money at all, I think became quite, I, I saw a real backlash against this where people were almost turning against cultural heritage mm, as yeah. a word. I mean, it's a false opposition, obviously. We don't have to put cultural heritage and people 
into opposition. You can fund both of them if you have enlightened enough government systems and so on. It doesn't have to be (laughs) that you have all of these swishy, amazingly restored buildings and children are shoeless and hungry and so on. You know, you can you can do both. But I think for a lot of people that they they ended up sort of putting them into opposition. And I wonder if that's actually backfired a bit and sort of lessened the support for the conservation efforts. Yeah, I think that's that's a very good point. And we do of course live in very tricky times but i'm actually of course very glad that the climate change stuff is actually Mm -hmm. very much at the forefront of people's thoughts right now it's amazing but yeah it it did create that interesting juxtaposition um right should we perhaps get on with our portfolios do it before i came into conservation i thought portfolios were for designers and artists and i could not imagine that it was for anything else (laughs) yeah and i was extremely confused when it was a thing (laughs) same in fact i remember when i when I still lived in Sweden and I was applying or indeed actually just looking at universities to apply for, some universities, you know, wanted you to have a portfolio already as part of your submission. What? And I mean, it, they were very, there were no real guidelines. What? Well, yeah, quite, because you're a student. I mean, I've so done literally nothing. nothing. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Of nothing. Of the bits of volunteering I've done, I guess. Of course, that was too terrifying for me, which is probably a large reason why I ended up doing archaeology and heritage management <laughs> for my first degree, because I was like, that's too scary. I don't have anything to show these people if that's what they want. I mean, yeah. not everyone wanted that, but it was a daunting thing to look at, especially as a student coming in from abroad. So that's probably part of the reason why I ended up doing conservation the kind kind of conservation we talk about for my master's degree instead because that was just too terrifying for me to figure out at that point it is this interesting thing and I think it's possibly even more of a thing in America where people are expected to kind of come in with experience kind of already in a way pre-programmed stuff and Mm -hmm. all that I'd love to hear by the way if anyone has any thoughts on that yeah absolutely not just America Um, we had an intern from Germany Mm. um, uh, last year who was doing her master's at Durham but had already done a year's pre-program internship in Germany because that's what you do. And there's this whole sort of infrastructure of these internships, which you can apply for and get and so on, because it's so expected that you will do it. So she came into her degree at Durham already having (laughs) quite a lot of stuff on her plate, I think. Yeah, so it does work differently in different parts of the world, certainly. But yeah, so before before conservation, I did not realise that portfolios were things that weren't just for people who make interior designing things <laughs> or web pages or um, <laughs> clothes or, you know, that sort of thing. I didn't know that a portfolio could be for anything that we do, which became very obvious as we started talking about it on our degree courses. Mm-hmm. Yes. Where I had even less of an idea what a portfolio was, would entail or look like. It was actually a fairly terrifying part of the education process, I felt. I found it daunting because it was sort of, we were taught by our lecturers at Cardiff how to do a portfolio, what they, what employers are after. It was very much like, this is a good opportunity for you to present the kind of person you are. And I was like, what? How do I present the kind of person I am yeah. on paper? I, I do feel oh. like it was quite general and it I, deliberately vague I yes. feel because you mm. meant you're not really meant to produce what everyone else is producing you're meant to do something that's yours yeah but that's a really hard thing to do when you don't really know mm-hmm. enough about what you're what you're up to in a way um so I found that 
very difficult. There wasn't really much online to look at. There wasn't, you know, design portfolios or that Mm -hmm. sort of thing. Like, no one put up a conservation portfolio in those days so you could see what one even looked like, Mm. like what you were meant to aim for. Uh, So I had very little idea what the production value was of what I should aim to present. Uh, So it's all well and good to say it should have some conservation treatments that you're proud of Mm -hmm. and maybe some other bits as well that are useful to employers. Wow, that's not an instruction. (laughs) (laughs) Like, that's just, what? (laughs) So I I felt very panic-stricken about the Mm. entire thing and I feel like I did not do, I did not make a good portfolio at the time. I still don't think I do a good portfolio, but I do a passable one. So actually, before we start talking about our portfolios, Christina, what was yours like? Actually, I'm just getting mine down off the shelf because I haven't had the heart to get rid of them. But actually, they're completely useless as actual (laughs) objects. So I trained at UCL where it was a three-year training program at the time. And you did a one-year MA followed by a two-year MSc. And I did uh, as part of that. And I think this is one of the problems is that the portfolio was actually part of our assessed work. Mm. So it was just trying to do too many things. It was trying to tick all the boxes for the assessed academic work um, and also to show off your work and so on. And it ended up not really being very useful as a job portfolio. So I have a portfolio from 2003 to four, and I'm just measuring it. (laughs) And it's... It is three and a half centimetres thick. What? So, <laughs> oh, my for, God. I mean, for a start, that's from the first year of my MSc. Now, bear in mind, I was a bit of a SWAT who went ludicrously overboard for all of my academic work. Christina, you? No, surely not. <laughs> and so some of this is sort of, you know, like title pages and so on for all the sections, but it contains presentations of some of the objects are done during the lab year. But they were in the form of, I think from memory, 5,000 word essays. The point is, it was great for my MSc. I got a very good mark. I was highly happy with that. But then you turn up to interviews carrying this massive (laughs) waiting tome and somebody says, tell me about an object you've treated. And you're like leafing through this enormous thing. And through all of these 5,000 word essays, <laughs> trying to find something useful about your object, it's absolutely useless from that point of view. It serves no good practical purpose. And then at the end, we um, had to present individual object, brief individual object things. But we were limited to two photos per report per object. And so most people did a before photo and an after photo. And actually, that's completely useless in terms of portfolios. Those aren't the particularly useful things to show. Before treatment can show you the condition it was in before treatment. After treatment shows that you've made some kind of visible change to it, hopefully. Although some of my treatments, there wasn't actually much of a visible change. That's always disappointing. So you end up with two two kind of almost identical photos. <laughs> Look, brown thing, also brown yeah, thing. exactly. So from the point of view of, of being able to show potential employers what you've done, that's actually not very useful at all. And what is more useful it would be 
having more photos, less text, and the ability to put in more in-progress mm. photos where you're showing the treatment in progress. So um, it sat on my shelf ever since 2003, and I have not once got it out to show an employer. I'm just looking at my portfolio. We had to do another one from for um, the second year of the MSc, and this one is a mere two centimetres thick, so I'd obviously eased off a bit in the <laughs> interim. It contains a learning review, which uh, all about my internship year and reflections on my development as a conservator and so on, all again, very useful for the academic degree that I was working towards. Great for an MSc, absolutely useless again for a potential employer. They don't really care about your personal development over the course of your internship year. And then I can see there's loads and loads of text and contextual information I've gone into researching this cartonage mummy case I treated, loads of stuff from the original excavation reports and so on. But yeah, basically not very useful as an actual portfolio. So it's quite interesting that I had to produce one of these portfolios each year as part of my academic degree, but they're a very different kind of thing from what you understand by portfolio. And so I I went out looking for jobs and you would say, bring a portfolio. And I didn't really have a model to base that on because all I had were these these ridiculous (laughs) items. Uh, We have Julia to thank for this brilliant idea for an episode topic because she came to see me in my studio a few months ago and you presented this as as an idea and I thought, yes, that is excellent. So who better to guest host than Julia herself? Well, I guess the reason why I pitched the idea is because of the anxiety that portfolios mm. have caused me since I started applying for jobs. I think the anxiety has eased up a bit after I've had some positive feedback uh, from different conservators. But I think I have to agree with the rest of you. There isn't that much to to look at in terms of what is expected. It wasn't really covered in detail during my degree either. The portfolios presented as part of my degree uh, similarly we didn't really, they were quite different. They weren't what you would expect. A lot of text, a lot of writing, a lot of explaining that perhaps isn't useful in the five minutes the interviewers have yeah. to, to assess your yeah. work. So yeah, when I started getting interviews, I did have to produce something completely different and I really didn't know what it was. And I think there are also a lot of challenges for new conservator when they produce that because they might have so in my case, I felt like I was having trouble in getting all my experience across because mm-hmm. a lot of my experience course from, came from volunteering, yeah. workshops. It were, sometimes it weren't full treatment, but I did a lot of work that was quite difficult to present. My challenge was how to maximise that, how to show up in the best way possible. And there aren't really any examples. Even online, there are examples of portfolios of private conservatives that are aimed at clients. Yeah. They're not interested in the same things. Yeah, so they are quite different as well. So, yeah. that's, so for that reason, I thought there isn't that much material for us to actually consult when we start working on that. And it would be really useful to get people's opinions and advice. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm really interested in, because you did a paintings conservation specific degree, didn't you? Yes. Were you taught, what what was the advice that you were given in your education? Were you, because I imagine that as yours is a specialism, as opposed to objects, general objects conservation, do you have quite a different kind of portfolio then that's very conservation uh, specific? What was your advice that, that you were given? 
don't remember having specific sessions on that. Right. So there was there was there was some advice on on how to present the portfolio. Uh, how to present it in a professional way, mm-hmm. uh, to use good quality images, to use useful images that actually show progress, to to take good images and good quality images before and after and mm-hmm. have proper documentation. We haven't, we didn't actually go through specifics of how you go about it. Mm, right. um, that sounds that sounds very yeah. similar to yeah. what we did actually. Yeah. Mm, yeah. I think what you one of you said earlier about it's a way to present yourself or what kind of person you are. Yeah. And I think that's a bit scary. Yeah. Don't, <laughs> I don't know what person they want, and I think it's slightly difficult as if we were expected to guess what they exactly. want and the person who guesses best gets the job. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I'm I'm actually intrigued by that advice because. I, I don't know whether it means show what kind of person you are in terms of your personality and the things that are to do with you outside conservation, or whether it literally means just show what kind of conservator you are. So advice that I've had, or I suppose like things that people have said to me, so from both sides of the table, as it were, both interviewers and interviewees or people applying to things uh, and te- teachers, is that they want, it's a good opportunity to, show your your personality in that when people are interviewing you they're trying to um they're trying to obviously see how competent you are whether you fit the job description and whether you could do the job but also whether you'll be able to fit in or whether you'll be a nice person to work with Mm -hmm. and I don't each to their own basically I think the interviewers are as different as the interviewees so it it, you know Christina you probably want I imagine you'll want to you know a, a academic focus but then I've definitely spoken to people that say things like well you can teach people how to do various conservation skills or gain experience you can introduce them to different um, opportunities for experience but you can't make them a nice person or you can't like (laughs) you can't sort of make them interesting to work with as it were I'm just interested to know how that's how you're supposed to be able to demonstrate this through a portfolio. I can understand that some of your personality might come out while you're presenting the portfolio because it's quite common to be asked in an interview, okay, could you talk me through one of the objects in your portfolio or one of the projects mm-hmm. in your portfolio? Could you present it to me in the thing? And I can see how that might give people an inkling of how good you are at explaining things to other people, how yeah. good you might be at talking to others and outreach and so on. But I mean, I don't know. I mean, most portfolios follow a fairly standard, limited format. I would have thought so. I would have thought the scope for expressing your personality more broadly would have been quite limited. And and I I haven't seen anybody turn up with like a a pink, sparkly unicorn portfolio, for example, (laughs) you know, or a a kind of golf portfolio, or you know, I just, I, I I just interested to know. how you would express that you're friendly through the medium of a portfolio. It just oh, yeah. seems like like the interview itself would be a better way to do that. And I wouldn't put so much weight on the portfolio. These are really good questions. And I remember, right, so I'll briefly try to describe my first portfolio that I made mm-hmm. for the cause, but with the intent for it to be something you show employers. Mm-hmm. So whilst this was something we did as part of our degree it was for employers not for our lecturers Mm -hmm, really so it was meant to make us more employable kind of immediately because we'd already be launching into the world with this thing between us and the employer like shouting wildly we're good please hire us (laughs) and i remember that i 
tried to inject some personality, by which I mean personal touches into their portfolio. Mm-hmm. And the way I did that, you may have noticed that I do the art for the show, was I put little bits of artwork in and say icons that meant time taken on treatment mm-hmm. or treatment method or materials used. So instead mm. of wasting more words on that, I made little icons for it and stuff like that. So I attempted to kind of make it more me in that I illustrated some of the answers. It's adorable. Um that that was my attempt at injecting some more me into this and making it also slightly more memorable. I mean, it did not work because that was not a good portfolio. But, well, first of all, you've only done about five things at that stage. So there's very yeah. little you can talk about. I mean, I think most of the things I put in there were probably things I did in my internship because those were the slightly more exciting mm. things at that point. But so I feel like I fell for all the, all the tropes. Like I bought a kind of portfolio case that's more like what artists use mm-hmm. but just so it there was mm. uh, sturdier and it could travel with me but in actual fact it was far too big because as soon as something is a4 sized it anything that covers a4 is massive and doesn't fit in any <laughs> mm. bag you'll ever bring to an interview which means you have to carry the thing on a train which is embarrassing it was just too too sturdy in some ways it was too posh and then inside i went for like really high quality paper because i we were told that oh think about the quality Mm -hmm. of what you're trying to present so i went for really high quality paper which was lovely but also didn't quite work with the printer ink (laughs) so it was like it Mm. slightly made the images too dark and it was a bit bit of a bizarre failure yeah, you only have about five things to present at that point. So it kind of doesn't matter how you present them. They're still the same Roman <laughs> nail that everyone does and the same bloody silver coin that everyone got. You mm-hmm. know, like it's it's very samey and you still probably have before and after where it's just slightly less brown <laughs> because you haven't done anything that's uh, extraordinary yet. And that's fine. That is you fine. You described so many, so much of my conservation career. <laughs> and that is fine because it's brown, everyone, yay! because sometimes we just don't make things look super amazing all the time and things are not that dramatic on a student Mm -hmm. level yeah and because they're not supposed to be you're learning but yeah so it's difficult to work with and then i think i popped in like an example of some report or like pictures of me holding a pest trap or something in an attempt to show people that look i know how to identify insects even though that's not what it tells you there were some action shots in there and that's about it so it was an abysmal failure as far as the portfolio went i took it to interviews and I hated it I hated it with every fiber of my being so what I started doing uh, by the way a piece of advice that we were given was always keep your portfolio up to date so keep making these pages so they're ready to print out whenever you need to go to your next job interview and that sort of thing like as you're doing little bits and bobs always keep it up to date that that was the thing and actually Yes, but actually I kind of reinvent mine whenever I go somewhere because I want it to be about what they want and I try to pitch it at them. So, And sometimes people don't even remember or know to ask for a portfolio, which is also entertaining. <laughs> it really depends on where you go for jobs as well. So, for example, in, in the job that I have now, they didn't ask for a portfolio. They were so pleased that I brought one because they had no idea that was an option. <laughs> That it was really it's always really nice to impress people when you're like I'm just doing the standard thing but I'm really glad you're appreciating <laughs> it because usually people don't give a shit. 
So you're you're working somewhere though where you're the only conservator. Yes, and so exactly. I think so there was... portfolios are very much for the benefit of other conservators, aren't they? But it meant that I could show them what I could do in a really quite visual way, um, because mm. they, they didn't have the conservation expertise. They were just desperate for a conservator who could do the kinds of things that they had in their collection. Mm. And honestly, what I did in that one was I got one of the, one of those like the horrible plastic folders that you get from like WH Smith if those still exist uh, from a stationery shop like quite something quite standard because I wasn't trying to be flashy and I printed on regular old paper and I just made it functional it was a functional piece of work which showed had good images still uh, had minimal information but I could talk around them at the end I had some very brief reports by which I mean reports made for people who aren't conservators because I knew they didn't have one. Mm. So the whole point was I need to be able to show them that I can produce things that they can understand. It was an important point to get across that, look, I can produce a one-page report that has a nice graph that shows you everything that you need to know and a recommendation at the bottom. I'm done. Boom. Mic drop. Out. (laughs) Uh, And that was a selling point. And that's not going to work everywhere because some people... Uh, especially if you're up, you know, if you're being interviewed by other conservators, they might need something much more specific, like whole treatment proposals in detail, who knows, but do always tailor it to where you're going. And I knew that they didn't have a conservator. So that's why that worked for me. So yeah, always pitch it to the, to the people that you're actually seeing. Yeah, I do agree with the updating of the portfolio every time I think it's yeah every time you, you, you apply you have to think about what they want sometimes it's not very clear what they want no and that's true that well. is a worry uh but it was really uh, reassuring to hear about how student portfolios will not be groundbreaking treatments and that's okay yeah I think no. that's that's kind of a trap that people fall into I definitely did I look at myself and I was like oh it's not good enough yeah I mean I think if someone's just done two or three years of a course, you know, there's only so much you can expect. So I think maybe that's a good piece of advice to not work yourself up too much because that's what is expected at a certain level of the career. And obviously, as you get more experience, the portfolio will be changing as well. In a way, portfolios are comforting then in that they are, if you are somebody who gets nervous in interviews and you're worried that you're not going to be able to come across as well as you might want to. The portfolio is something solid that you can prepare Mm -hmm. in advance in your kind of best conditions, as Mm -hmm. it were, and bring with you so that even if you get nervous in the interview and you can't think what it was you wanted to say or you're worrying that you're not coming across as well as you could, you've always got the portfolio there. Yeah, I found it quite grounding. But can I ask, Julia, first, what do you have in your portfolio at the moment? as you're in your position of applying to paintings conservation specific roles? In my portfolio, I basically have all the bigger treatment that I've done. Mm -hmm. And um, I present before and after, and I present detailed photos of relevant details of my work. Mm -hmm. And I do have some text describing what I do, what materials I use, and I try not to use too much text mostly focus on images and describing the what's in it if that's necessary i've also added some key skills and learning points at the end of each treatment mm-hmm. Ooh, so i kind of point out nice. kind of mm. summarize some bullet points of these are the key skills and so i learned this was the challenge that i had and and, and worked around to kind of show that i do reflect mm. on 
That's my good. work That's as well. And sometimes it's quite difficult if we work a uh, very, very long time on the treatment. Painting conservation is very labor intensive. Mm. And sometimes we will spend a lot of time doing stuff and feeling like we're not getting any work because it's so slow. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we feel like you haven't learned anything from it. But if you take a few minutes at the end of the day just to have a thing and write things down, you realize that every day there is something that you have figured out. And um, if you do that and try to do it on a daily basis or whenever you work, then it's, it's much easier later on to, to summarise that little portfolio. That's really great advice. Uh, my, my portfolio is organised by treatment specific of specific objects, but that's not the, the only way to organise it. And a few people have suggested other ways to me. So, for instance, focusing on specific treatment types rather than objects Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so for instance surface cleaning consolidation and either use a few examples or Mm. perhaps just show the best example from all your work focus on all the different types of treatment that you have experience with that's something that I imagine is really valuable and kind of again grounding for for a specialist I can't imagine that objects conservation would be able to do that because there are so many like I don't know consolidation mm. could be like it, that's of, true but like, you could have like a whole page of different ways of consolidating surfaces yeah like, that's true yeah yeah you could go to town on yeah that. that's true I, I think you could also do, do it by like material that. as well yeah that that ten that that's I what feel like I'm that trying to, to be do. the thing that objects conservators do yeah. I think and likewise, you could also do archaeological material versus ethnographic material versus social history material. Yeah, yeah. So I think there are actually alternative ways of splitting up objects yeah. as well that aren't just mm-hmm. here's, a, here's a single discrete project, here's another project. Yeah, and of course, some people go remedial and preventive mm. and just have those two sections. Mine, I think, is probably just a fairly standard objects conservation portfolio. But I've actually, the amount that my covers actual conservation practical conservation is fairly low actually so mine is split by conservation treatments internship experience and then other so I've got my conservation my practical conservation split by archaeological material and like the stuff that I did during my degree and then stuff that I've done since but the majority of my um, conservation experience that I've done since has been like decants and large object movement and you know risk assessments and IPM and that sort of thing so are you almost more chronological I'm more chrono well like yeah basically at before, the moment before graduation and after graduation yeah BG so, and AG <laughs> yeah <laughs> I haven't actually updated mine since for two years since I got my current job i haven't either i would i think it would probably be a really good practice to update it while i'm not under pressure to Um, and i know i realize that you know people listening to this who are looking for a job like all right but um from the point of view of of what to include i've got my conservation and i've got my the things that i learned during my internship i actually didn't update it all that much as i went i tended to have it was my basic it was a basic formula essentially that i moved around depending on what it was that people wanted from me and that i think is one of the reasons why i found it quite grounding because i i sort of had it as this is my experience i know what i can expect i know what i can talk about 
And then I put things um, as I went on. I put things like this is my role, like a CV actually. Yeah, you're right. It is. You're right, Julia. It is a. It's like a visual CV, isn't it? I put in sections of like this is my exhibitions conservation section of my experience where I had loads of photographs of some of the displays that I had done and some of the working with curators and that sort of thing. The things that I've had people comment on have been like, um, this is a photograph of me like operating this large lifting equipment. I, photos of IPM, methods of doing IPM. Advice that I've had has been like put risk assessments in there to for, so people can see that you you do them and you can do them I don't think the one I've got in mind is actually very good but other people have suggested I've heard things like to demonstrate project management include an email or like, like an example of your writing kind yeah. of thing and, and how you would plan something and potentially a Gantt chart as well to demonstrate how you you plan mm. your time my portfolio at the moment ad does actually have a failure in it which I don't think I've ever heard as advice to include but it was as That's I was all about going what you learn, though, isn't well it? exactly and the, the, the interesting thing was it was as I was going for my current job which is textiles conservation I only had very bare bones conservation a textiles conservation experience in there and the one of the, the thing that was the failure was a textile object. So it gave me the opportunity to talk about the challenges that I found with it and say, well, this is what I found myself having to do, but this is what I wouldn't do again kind of thing. So yeah. it, was, it wasn't, you know, a, a, this like is that. how great I am. It is always valuable to have your like loads of projects that you've done and examples of different types of conservation potentially and different projects that you've done because people expect to see that. And it, it's like, oh, yeah, that's comforting. We know that they, they, this person can do all those things. So they might not actually look very closely at the work you've done because just its presence is is a good sign. But the things that people have lingered on, as I said, are the things that are more unusual. Like, oh, this is this person working with contractors mm. or risks or... Yeah, I have dabbled with having a digital one, by which I mean, <gasps> at one point I was too poor to have a printer, but that's not something you tell an employer when they're in tune. <laughs> so um, what I did was I had, I do believe this was an iPad that was so old that it cannot be updated. Like it's like <laughs> the first iPad ever made. Like that's an antique. Uh, but you could put pictures on it, so that's fine. So what I did was that I just put pictures and uh, like a collage of like each object on it and I could talk around the pictures and mm. you could you know you could zoom in and stuff so it was vague, that's really good vaguely helpful yeah. I feel like it wasn't I wasn't super comfortable with it because it wasn't as it was as tactile as sitting mm. there with leafing through a, yeah. a paper thing so that was a drawback for me but at the same time it was a good and much quicker way arguably of producing a portfolio that yeah. I could still take along and they could still look at and they could still sit and flick through in, mm. uh, in their own time because there was nothing else on it like that was literally mm -hmm. all the content that was on the iPad so that is also an option and I have heard of other people successfully having digital ones so they don't have to mm. be paper-based which is just worth worth keeping in mind I mean I've, I've been to jobs where they've actually requested a digital portfolio what? and that is know. increasingly common as a thing and so I, I actually went to the I, for one job I went to the effort of making a digital portfolio and then I actually pulled out of the job interview <laughs> because I've been given another job so I never actually got to present it it probably doesn't um, take more time than any other portfolio prep really no, to be honest, all portfolios take a huge amount of time. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a kind of example yeah. of a kind of um, unpaid 
extra work you have to do to get a job that is yeah. depressingly common in conservation, I yeah. think. <laughs> yeah, that, that <laughs> you know, is the, thing. the extra stuff you're expected to do. So I found that portfolios take a shocking amount of time mm. that you wouldn't expect, even just revising and mm. redoing little things. It's, um, you do want to make them look nice. And so that's why I feel like here's an appeal to all the conservatives that are interviewing and asking for portfolios. Do provide some good feedback. Because I have, Absolutely. I've had a lot of experiences yeah. where either wasn't given any feedback or I was just told that my portfolio was very good and wasn't given any specific advice or comments about what was good or what was bad about it. And I think, you know, having spent so much time preparing for revising, it's just so very helpful to have some pointers to know what's to change what to work on it's kind of taken for granted in a way isn't it that yes you will provide your portfolio here it is great thanks flick 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 and then Mm. no no other comments made about it i've had interview feedback but no one's ever said anything about the portfolio no sometimes i wonder how important portfolio is and how things are presented um versus the interview versus the actual treatments that are in there it's it's quite difficult to know what carries the most weight Mm -hmm. when when the decision is made it's just so expected that we'll have one and it's so expected that there'll be photographs of everything you do and everything that you are able to do that the the sort of maybe and it'd be great to hear back from people who have done who who have done lots of employment and employing um interviewing um type processes before how how important is it and is it on your radar how much time it takes and how much people put into these things just a reminder that um there is actually an interview with two employers in one of our earliest yes. episodes about emerging professionals yes. in which they did actually talk about portfolios and their impressions of yes. what makes a good portfolio and a bad portfolio and also how people come across in interviews as well oh, brilliant. so if you are currently applying for jobs, do go and that <laughs> go yes. and listen to one of our emerging professionals episodes. Yes, I think that was definitely. season um, two, I, I found that really wasn't it? it season was, two, yeah, part was, two of emerging was, professionals. Yeah, it was the second mm, one. Yeah. yeah, that's right. I thought I'd throw in quickly that we did ask people some questions on Twitter in the run up to this episode. One was we asked conservation students what they were taught about the portfolios when they studied and what. Uh, they wish people would tell them about them. Lucy wrote in and said, uh, we had weeks of lectures on putting portfolios together. We were marked on them when we'd finished. There was a bit of confusion about using first or third person and how much information employers want to see. So yeah, yeah, first or third person. That's 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 mm. a debate, which is interesting. I feel like I don't do either. Uh, I feel like I don't yeah, do... I here. treated this thing. I feel like it's treatment time, treatment time, three hours, treatment method, because it is obviously me doing it. Yeah, mine's quite bullet pointy, so yeah. I don't think I mentioned it's, it's not, the, the person's not mentioned at all. Ali gives some advice to a student saying, always put your best foot forward. If it doesn't show your skills or wow, then don't put it in. And it's worthwhile to build a brand you can carry across your, to your business cards, resume, website, etc. Now, that is a very wow. forward thinking <laughs> yeah. uh, type thing. Up to what? We're, we're, we're now in a brand economy. So actually, yeah, we're all, we're all our own brand, aren't we now? So, um, yeah, it's interesting. And that's putting a lot of forethought into it, which is arguably a good advice um because we all need to stand out from the crowd so it's all about what we want to be i guess and what we want employers to think we are yeah 
can I add to that? Uh, well, two things. One of them is a plug for my talk at the my presentation at the Icon Belfast conference is called the 21st Century Conservator Training Skills and Employment. Yeah. Basically, I'm going to be presenting the results of a survey of the job market over the last 10 years in the UK for conservation. Mm-hmm. And looking at what employers are looking for in conservators in job adverts and how well that matches up with what conservators are actually trained to do Mm -hmm. and what we think conservators ought to be doing as part of their jobs. Come to that. Yeah, definitely come to that. (laughs) And as part of that, I've actually been uh, collecting obviously job adverts and specifications. And I just wanted to mention a job that's been advertised currently, or quite recently anyway, in which it says in the job advert, in addition to the application form, you must provide an illustrated portfolio of your work, a maximum of eight eight sides of A4 in length, detailing three relevant projects. So the idea is that you submit this with your application. Oh, wow. I've not seen that before. And so just wanted to put that out there as that, you know, people are increasingly employers are possibly wanting to see some of this stuff in advance before you even get to the interview. Yeah. Interesting. Wow. I think Mm. it's quite a sort of relaxing. Well, not relaxing. It's quite it's it's less pressure. I think it's it's a bit of a rest, isn't it? Potentially for for interviewers that they've been talking to people for hours and hours. And obviously interviewing is literal hell for the interviewees but for the interviewers it's it's hard going as well because they might have six hours on the trot of talking to people about their work and if you know that is interspersed with just simply chatting with people about the work that they've done with pictures that must be a bit of a rest is yours a thing that is printed out then i mean like is is yours a fixed thing how is it right so i print mine out in a3 format so it's slightly bigger Mm. I print a landscape, but like two kind of two pages per sheet. Oh yeah, okay. Basically. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. So then that's a bit more space. I got actually got inspired by another conservative when I was designing mine. If I have a bigger treatment where I do a bit more to the object, then I will have two two sheets of A3 just covering mm-hmm. what I did and all the images there. Um, so I print that out and I have that in PDF as well in case anyone requests uh, to see in advance. So are they like loose sheets or are they bound in some way? Or? Um, so I have one of these quite basic folders and then I just swap them around depending on where I go and what the focus is, whether it's more of a contemporary art a focus or historical or if there's anything that I suspect they might be more interested in then I will put it at the beginning so to, to, to make sure that I do get a chance to talk about it I think mine yeah, is same boring, here. boring in A4 <laughs> yeah mine's A4 as well I like the fact I, I can sort of print out way more projects than I can actually fit in at any one time I've also got mine split into sections called treatment and display collection care and research and professional engagement uh, we asked uh, conservators what they do with their portfolios what do they include what do they think they're useful uh, digital paper do you tailor to each job or not uh, what about layout and then chloe asked an additional question about if you do provide photos or not and stephanie uh, replied mm-hmm. to that and said that i grew up in the generation of photo didn't happen yeah so i feel that way about most things it's 
uh, one thing to say that you can do something is completely different to show that you can. Yeah, that is a massive problem though, because a lot of things that I do, I'm the only person in the room at the time. Right, I can't have someone else take my photo while that's happening. This is I could genuinely have a full on rant about this <laughs> because it. I've had situations where I've described like, I, oh yes, I have moved this thing from here to here, and the thing that got the ooh, that's interesting, was a photograph of me using a pallet truck. Like this, yeah, this is really great. It's great that you can put photographs of yourself in these things but they are literally always staged because you don't well, yeah you're mm-hmm. not gonna go i'm gonna move this really heavy delicate object yeah please you just take, take a, take a photograph of me. of me while i'm doing it no you don't do that you move you focus on moving the the object <laughs> and then you go hang on let yeah. me just like pose yeah. I'm, I'm as i'm, I'm like, posing for jenny here <laughs> You pose for it, and you. That's why there is such a thing as the portfolio face the, that you pull when <laughs> the the, the, either photographers are, or friends taking your photograph. Serious your face, staring into the middle distance, but looking focused. It's interested and half smile. Lucy says, "More, my portfolio has always been digital ever since undergrad." Craig says, as my recent work has been teaching and not treatment, I'm trying out topic-based pages like planning, training, engagement and innovation. It's on paper, bullet points only, using I but no photos of me. Oh, that's that's an interesting one. Mm. If you don't do object-based things, which, you know, a lot of us don't yeah. uh, periodically at the very least, you know. But yeah, so that's interesting. And yeah, again, very difficult to get photos of you lecturing to people mm-hmm. or, you know, like that's... Or, how do you even take a photo of yourself planning something? Is it you with a thinking face? You know, that's basically impossible to illustrate. Other than here's a screenshot of a Gantt chart. You yeah. know, like yeah. that sort of level of thing. So yeah, that, that's a tricky one. Uh, Amy says having a portfolio was the best piece of advice I was given. Interviewers are always impressed, and I think shows organization and a clear thought process. Uh, they can also act as prompts for examples during the interview process. I use photos of myself when possible. Proves uh, to the interviewer that you can back up your uh, your talk. Uh, also think it's very important uh, to use first person shows you have confidence about your own work that's so cool mm. um i have a general portfolio that are tailored to each interview details are important she says claire writes in and says i do use a digital portfolio since three years now including an about me section selected treatments with a few pictures of myself and general description and a contact page and then she says i usually tailor a pdf abstract of it for applications that's a clever one Freya says, uh, I think it's great crutch and good reminder when you're a little bit nervous, which we've already talked about. So that's true. Ian says, I think you have to tailor to the job to best showcase your skill set. Uh, oddly, I wasn't asked for one in my last job interview, which is sad because I had it all ready. I was like, oh. Yeah, it's a pain. Yeah. I think I have once chickened out. I actively brought it. And because they didn't ask, I was too frightened to say, by the way, I have a portfolio with me. I think that was possibly I one of my very first. Lay it on the desk. Yeah, that's this what is... I do since because I was very disappointed in myself for not yeah, oh. having the confidence to fish it out of my bag and go, look, look, I have a thing. But it's a very weird situation mm, to be yeah, in an interview. Yeah, so, uh, Stephanie says I have a physical portfolio and I have plans <laughs> to create a digital one. Uh, I was not asked for a copy for the last couple of interviews I did, including the job I have. I tailor to the job showing of skills and techniques that I think will be useful and makes me unique. I need to improve the layout. I currently have one page per object. Was recommended to change it to a two-page spread so the photos can be larger. I make sure to include something about analysis and social media on each object shown instead of putting that info into separate sections. Oh, that's a, that's interesting to include a bit mm. of what you've done there. 
Gloria says the portfolio is essential. It also says a lot about the professional person. And it's great to look at 10 years down the line from now and go, oh. <laughs> uh, and Nat says she has a digital one. And then we also asked people who recruit conservatives, how important is a portfolio when it comes to hiring the right person for the job? What do you love seeing in them and what do you wish people didn't bother including? Jane says, I was disappointed by a very ill-focused portfolio. The interviewee kept flipping through page after page to look for things, certainly created a bad impression. And then Simon says, they're useful for early career conservatives, but not necessary beyond that. CV and interview should tell you what you need to know. If you do take one to an interview, keep them short and use excellent relevant images. And Jane agrees that if it's not excellent, don't include it. I suppose that's later on in your career. Like you don't have to yeah. include every Roman nail you've ever sandblasted. Like you, you can you you can trim it down to like your best. But what work. does excellent mean? That's up to you, isn't it? I know, but that's the pressure, isn't it? Yeah, no, that's true. Emily says, I definitely think it's beneficial to bring a portfolio. There's always a chance that what you have in there will help you answer a question or expand on your answer. Good to see evidence of work as application forms and sometimes interview questions can't get the full picture. I haven't yet seen anything in a portfolio I wish they hadn't shown me, but definitely make sure it's relevant to the job you're being interviewed for. It should be a working document that is tweaked and updated accordingly. Sarah says, whether analog or digital, I like seeing challenging treatments and well-written descriptions of what went well and what didn't. So see, there's mm, there's mm-hmm, there's mm-hmm. your failure that comes in there. I like seeing process. Show me how you think and approach complex projects. Give me a sense of how you'd react in real life and manage all aspects of a project. That's a much more human approach, mm-hmm, I think. Yeah. So that's cool. M says that they have a range when they interview people. Some people bring portfolios and some don't. Seems more about how people use them. And she has an example. Someone in particular seamlessly incorporated into their answers. Other used it as a repository of possible answers, which worked less successfully. My conclusion this time around is to bring in user portfolio if you can use it successfully. So there it seems to be all about how slick you are. Yeah. Which is terrifying because I'm not very slick in an interview anyway. Uh, I am terribly nervous wreck. Um, I think I'm slick ever. Uh, Angela says, during interviews, I personally don't want to see more than two A4 pages per object or treatment and no more than three examples. That's six pages, but for but 36 for me to be enthused about when interviewing six candidates. It has yeah. to have an immediate impact or wow factor. A few words, loads of images. So those were the kind of responses that we got from social media. And really I think, interesting. I think they were really useful. So mm-hmm. thanks to everyone who responded. That was really, really good to hear. Um, Thank you very much. And again, if you have anything to add now that you've listened to this episode, then tweet us, uh, email us, anything Grab us in the street. Tell us, shout in our faces what you think about portfolios because we would love to hear about it. And as an extra bonus feature today, Icon Emerging Professionals Network recently had a portfolio-based meetup. Uh, They had one in London and one in Lincoln. And basically we asked if one of them could send us a little summary or review of what that uh, actually looked like. And uh, very kindly, Rebecca has uh, written a little summary for me to read out from her. Hello listeners of the Seawood podcast. Firstly, we must say a huge thank you to everyone who came to our portfolio meetup last Wednesday. Our first ever event could not have gone better and we're looking forward to holding our next one. As it happens, this will be a joint social with the Seawood podcast in Belfast. We will be heading to Granny Annie's on Thursday the 13th of June at 7.30pm, so look forward to meeting some of you there. Back to portfolios in our event last Wednesday. 
The creation of a portfolio can seem like a daunting prospect for many emerging conservators, but there's no doubt that having one to use at interview or show a, show a prospective client is important. How can you present your skills, experience and projects in a way that showcases the best of what you have to offer? This is what we aim to address as participants met at UCL in London and Coffee by the Arch in Lincoln to discuss all things portfolios. Lending a professional eye to proceedings were Renata Peters, UCL, Dugu Kamakoglu from British Museum and Pip MacDonald from Lincoln Conservation. With their combined conservation experience, it was a fantastic chance for participants to gain advice from those established in the field. Both sessions started with general critique and some portfolio examples, what worked particularly well in this portfolio and what could have been improved. The group discussion that followed was very constructive and touched on many aspects of creating a body of work. Branding, attention to detail, the inclusion of soft skills, going digital and the importance of great photography, which is some of the areas discussed. As there are far too many to list here, documents summarising these key points will be available soon. This resource will be shared on our website and Facebook page, so do check those out. Those who brought their own portfolios with them also gained some constructive feedback from the groups. In this informal environment, the chance to think out loud and suggest ideas was a fantastic way for participants to gain confidence in creating or improving their own portfolios. Not only did the participants go away with lots of ideas, but we also learned a lot too. And don't forget, if you want to run your own satellite meetup portfolio event, then don't hesitate to contact uh, the Icon EPN group at iconepn at gmail.com for help or any resources. We want to see many more events like this happening up and down the country. Well, there you heard it. You should definitely try to do one of these near you, if that's something that you're interested in. So I'm here with Tamsin today. Tamsin, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, uh, I'm Tamsin. I work at the Museums Association, but I've worked in the culture and heritage sector for about 18 years. Wow, well done. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was supposed to be a put down. It is really interesting. So when I do sessions around careers or interviewing and I ask people to stand up uh, and say how long they've worked in the sector, there's sometimes an apologetic, oh, I've worked in the sector for 18 years. And I reframe it that actually it's a real positive. There are people that would love. That's impressive. That's something to be really proud of. Completely. Yeah. Yeah. So I've worked in the sector for 18 years. Yeah. Nice. Excellent. (laughs) I feel like people are apologetic in the other direction Uh when I talk to people. It's like, oh, I've only been a conservator for a year and a half. And it's like, oh, that's a year and a half. Well done. Absolutely. Any stretch of time is amazing. And we should all be proud of what we do. Completely. Yep. Yep. You're in the sector. You're active. You're contributing. Yeah, exactly. That's a huge success. Absolutely. So today I was hoping that we could talk a little bit about interviews and Mm -hmm. because they can be really scary sticking points for a lot of people, but we all have to go through them. So I was hoping that we could have a little chat about maybe how we can be a bit more confident in interviews and things that we can just do to make interviews a bit less painful. Yeah, yeah, completely. And I think in a similar way that we shouldn't be apologetic for only working in the sector for 18 months is that once you're being invited to interview, that is a huge success in its own right. So yeah. there is a big congratulations around that. The The sector is really competitive. There are a huge number of people that want to work in the sector. For you to be shortlisted means that you have been really eloquent in your presentation of your experience interest and motivation and so that's huge in itself yeah and so that the key is to take that success from the written page and then bring it 
to the performance space, which essentially is what an interview is. What are some of the things that we can do to maybe open for ourselves up a bit beforehand, before the interview is even there? What do you think is some of the things that we can think about to make ourselves feel a bit more grounded? So first of all, is to realise that everyone feels that way and actually having some level of anxiety or lack of confidence if you use that if you use that energy it can be really helpful so the key is to make sure that that sort of nervous energy around something that you evidently want a lot is used to help you rather than to hinder you so first of all one everyone will feel that way Mm -hmm. two you need to think about how it manifests itself so how does that anxiety stop you from performing yeah so does it stop you from accessing that brilliant written evidence you've already submitted Mm -hmm. does that anxiety stop you from formulating sentences in a clear and concise fashion Mm -hmm. does that anxiety stop you from presenting an aura of confidence and what does that mean maintaining eye contact sitting up straight occupying your space so we all experience anxiety in a a, a potentially stressful situation and interviews are that we want to get the job we want to perform so there is something about acknowledging that's everyone's experience and then taking a step back and saying okay how does this manifest itself because depending on how it manifests itself depends on what you can do about it yeah does yeah. that make sense yeah so it's about knowing yourself absolutely yeah so for example if you know that your anxiety stops you from accessing your examples there are some handy hints and tips about being able to do that. So one of the things I know is that I have lots of information that I love to share. So there's a risk for me that, one, I forget what I'm saying, two, that I go off at a tangent, so you'll need to watch me, Uh, (laughs) and three, that I just, I'm not as concise in my communication. So So what I do is, and this is all handwritten, is I have a table that I print out that has... The criteria from the job that I'm going for, mm-hmm. pasted in from the job description or person specification. And then I have a really basic structure. And, and I adopt a, a sort of a once upon a time approach. So a thumbnail sketch of the project or uh, situation. I then talk about my role within that and then the result. And then for extra sprinkles and extra success, I also then think about how that experience has either informed my own professional practice, so what have I learnt through that, Mm -hmm. but equally what has the sector learnt through that. And on occasion, I might also think about what the legacy is. So having done something, so if I've uh, implemented a project, if I'm applying a new technique in terms of conservation, what has that meant in terms of has that then been adopted within my organisation as normal practice going forward because I've discovered something that's worked or has saved time or money. So when I think I might be too waffly, that's a really handy technique for me. And I've tried to type it into a beautiful Excel spreadsheet so I can access this learning uh, for multiple interviews just doesn't work for me I have to physically have the pen in my hand as I do now uh, and I have to write it down and that process of writing it down under those headings consolidates it interesting and then also the other added benefit of doing that is you get a really clear sense of the amount of evidence you have against each of the criteria Mm. so if you thought you've had a fantastic example when you write it down 
as a narrative you might find you actually don't have as many words or they're not as powerful and that would lead me to believe is is that the right example so it serves a number of purposes what I then do is go through it again but with a highlighter pen so Mm -hmm. I pick up the most salient points to help me consolidate that and then I will also either take that full document with me or if I have time, I'll translate it onto those beautiful A5 index cards that you oh, still yes. get. Love them. That I hope they never disappear. Literally, as a uh, as an A memoir, and I'll be looking at them. I'll be sitting in the office space waiting to be called, and I will have those in the palm of my hand, more as a safety net than anything yeah. else. Mm-hmm. But that also alleviates some of the other anxiety that you might have, which is, am I prepared? Yeah. So that enables me. Oh, that's good. Because we were talking about, as you might have heard if you've listened to the rest of the episode, that portfolios can serve the same yes. purpose and that they are visual aid memoir that you can look at and go, look, this is what I did here. And then that can prompt you into talking more about the project that's on the page in front of you. So having that tangible evidence can be hugely positive. There's a positive association with it. You have, and you know your work your professional work inside and out you can flick through it before you get there and even just as a sort of a physical anchor to your success that's that's great you know you can you, you can wave it around and my other reflections about portfolio which is why practice is really important is that it can make you look disorganized you need to know what pieces are where mm. less is probably more you need to be, think about the pieces that really communicate multiple points of evidence. Yeah. You need to identify the pieces that talk to the collection type of the organisation you'll be working with. Yeah. Or the project type that you might be recruited for if it's a fixed term post. And you do need to absolutely practice how you present that to the to the panel. And as part of that how you verbally present that to the panel. Uh, So how much instruction or description are you going to give and also be consistent? Yeah. And and that's, you know, that's a hard ask. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) I know when I'm in a situation, the adrenaline will be running. So the last thing I need is any more stimulants. So Mm. I make a decision uh, not to have coffee the morning of an interview because the last thing I want is any else that will accelerate my speech, uh, increase my pace, affect my cognitive abilities to recall information. And sometimes that's a risk for me if I have too much coffee. (laughs) So I purposefully don't have caffeinated drinks before an interview. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I do before an interview is I make sure I have a good night's sleep the night before mm-hmm. the night before the interview so in my experience people often talk about saying yeah I'm gonna have an early night the night before my interview the reality is that you're often so excited or terrified around the prospect of the next day that you're not going to get a good night's sleep yeah. you know you'll go to bed early but you won't be tired you will wake up intermittently thinking especially if you're having to travel for an interview yeah are you going to miss your train are you have an anxiety dream of of turning up somewhere without your portfolio and naked at the same time (laughs) so you often don't get a good night's sleep the night before yes so my advice would always be get a good night's sleep the night the night before so that you're most well rested you're less sleep deprived when you actually get to the point 
of interview. Yeah. A few other things that you can do could be around uh, visualisation techniques. So if you have been successful in the past, to reflect on what those success factors were. Yeah. And, and they can be anything. So there's no judgment. So I have a lucky dress. I also know that I probably have now, I get a nervous rash when I get excited about talking about things I'm passionate about and invariably if you do well at interviews often you are talking about things that you're passionate and excited about uh, but that can be distracting or people can make assumptions about that so they can say well she's very nervous or what would that look like if you're speaking on a a panel so again uh, just to ensure that I don't feel that my response to a more pressurized situation is leeching literally out of me I wear high collars and things like that Mm, Um, other things might be around just reminding myself that I've nailed interviews before, not catastrophizing, not thinking about what's the worst case scenario, thinking around it being a two-way process. I'm interviewing them as much as they're interviewing me. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, even though it doesn't always feel like that. Yeah. So I think there are a number of things you can do beforehand, uh, never mind sort of positive affirmations on post-it notes around the house or any other sort of ritual or rite that makes you successful. Can I share one more reflection about that in the moment? And it's about just being human. So if your mind goes blank, if you become overwhelmed, if you become emotional, sometimes that happens, then just to acknowledge that. You know, the, the reason uh, I can't think of an answer is that this, this job is really important to me and I really want to be part of this organisation. Or I'm sorry, can I just can you just give me a couple of minutes just to get in the zone where I'm able to answer so having that personal insight also having that honesty around how you're responding to that particular situation can go can can go a long way because that demonstrates really good self-awareness really good communication style and also a professionalism so yeah so just yeah just think about that and maybe have a tissue in your pocket just in case yeah just in case (laughs) Thanks very much for talking to us today, Townsend. Really appreciate it. A pleasure. And uh, I just hope everyone's successful because if you're doing something you love, then everyone benefits. Good luck, everyone. You can do it. Completely. Hello, my name is Roger Gaskus and I'm reviewing Always Time for Coffee by Kate Minchkin. Kate Minchkin has worked in the museum sector for over 20 years, including working at London's Natural History Museum and Hampton Court Palace. The book is aimed as to be a guide for frontline managers, team leaders and supervisors, so really applicable across the museum sector and beyond into manufacturing and really anywhere where people management is an essential skill. For me, my overall impression was this book really highlights skills and talent within the museum sector and particularly within the front of house sector of, of the museum sector. We see stories and experiences from museum professionals across the sector who have worked alongside Kate at different points in her career, really highlighting the breadth of skills available and experience within that teams. This really highlights how important front of house are to museum sector and are often undervalued. For example, overall undervaluation of people management, we see reports from in the introduction really, really shows you the level of training available and the, in reality the lack of training available. In the Harvard Business Review, a survey showed 77% of respondents saw frontline managers as important to reaching frontline goals, while 78% said they were important in achieving a high level of customer satisfaction. But in reality, only 12% said that organizations invested sufficiently in frontline managers. And this is something which we see in the museum sector as well. 
for example, front of house and museums a survey from 2018 highlighted that 49% of front of house staff are undervalued compared to around 12% of back of house. This book, I feel, really helps demonstrate the skills in the museum sector and really is a great tool for developing skills for the rest of the museum sector. It shows how skills from a front of house could be shared to other parts, such as conservation, such as curation, where people management is still just as essential. There is experience within the museum sector as well. Beyond that, the book is ideal for anyone to read. It is full of useful information and takes a very practical approach to um, frontline management, particularly around people management. It's a book which understands the importance of yourself and the people who are working for you. The book balances, for example, need to get training for your team and developing your team, even expecting them to move on to your career, but also expecting people not to, expecting people to be at a point where they're happy in their careers. It really helps to understand that people are going through careers at different rates and are happy at different levels. You shouldn't be judging someone for not being ambitious. You should be expecting people to have a wide range of levels of career engagement. It is also highlights the fact that you need to give time for yourself. The book is, is called Always Time for Coffee. It's about taking that bit of time to have a sit down with someone. This is something I've really taken on board about understanding needing to have that, those personal times to have a coffee, to have a think about what I've done and what I am going to do. But also when I'm wanting to talk to a volunteer, wanting to talk to a staff member about doing it in an informal, friendly environment, going outside the building for lunch, for example, or sitting down for a coffee in a quiet place with a volunteer to talk about how they want to develop. I found those elements of this book particularly useful because it helped me justify those ideas and also helped me understand how I wanted to be as a manager about the importance of not emulating someone else, but about emulating what you want to be and being yourself, something which I think gets conveyed much more effectively when you are working with people is who you are. If you're trying to be someone else, people will see through the facade, but if you're being yourself, people will see you for who you are. So really, yes, I, 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 I do recommend the book. It is really useful. It's available on Amazon at the moment. And it really does bring together the whole different elements required in, in frontline management. There's plenty of experiences and a lot of insight from Kate, nice little chunks, which you can take and, and read at your leisure. The book is, is really, I have found useful, particularly at my point of career where I'm starting now to manage people, currently volunteers, there's been a really useful insight into, into people management and giving an idea of what makes a good frontline manager and, and has helped me discover what I want to get out of it and has helped, started helping me shape how I manage people. Dear Jay, what is the best way to go about obtaining a PhD in the conservation field? Does conservation need more people with PhDs? What universities should I look into? Perpetual Student goes on to say, I've noticed that most programmes actually focus on conservation science. Focusing mostly on chemistry and physics students than in cultural heritage conserva- conservators. So I'm maybe not looking in the right place? Question mark. Hi, dear Perpetual Student. Thanks for your inquiry. Like many of our very smart listeners, you've got lots of questions into your question. The first question about doing a conservation PhD, 
was um, which university to choose. And I would advise you, rather than pick a university, pick a topic and use that topic to look for your supervisor. So if what you want to do is conservation science, then you must have um, a reason why you're interested in it. Is it that you want to do analytical work? Is there a particular material type that you're interested in? Is there an approach or a philosophy? And use that to narrow down where you look. I think that a PhD is such an intense contribution from you that um, the relationship with you and your supervisor is going to be so important to your satisfaction, your outcomes, and just, you know, whether the whole experience is positive. The next thing you asked was, you know, what's the best way to choose a PhD in the conservation field, I think, the best way in. And I guess my honest answer is the best way is a funded way. If you can find a PhD where someone's prepared to give you um, a cost of living or pay for your fees, then that has to be a factor to take into consideration. Otherwise, can you connect it to the job that you're in if you are in work at the moment um, so that perhaps you could do it part time or at least that you have some connection to um, a specific goal? So look around at the PhDs on offer. I'm not sure what country you're in, but there will be um, various clearing websites where you can look up where funded PhDs are being offered and advertised. If you are in the UK, then some of the doctoral partnerships are good, where they work between universities and employers. They're quite nice because they're going to be very grounded and you're going to have good access to samples or case studies because that will have already been, the, the way will have already been cleared. Then you ask, does conservation need more PhD students? That is a very interesting question because I guess it depends what you're really asking. Does it need more people with PhDs? No, I don't know that we do, but do we need to have more ideas and more answers? Yes, we certainly do. We certainly need to answer more questions. There's just so many unanswered questions in conservation, whether it's what is the best way to prevent this thing from corroding or What is the best way to identify the meaning of this object? Or how can we express this concept more clearly? How can we find out what the public really thinks that dust, you know, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing or how the dust affects their enjoyment? There's so many questions. So I think we need more ideas. We need more research. We need more thinking. However, in terms of employability, I don't think there is a massive demand for PhDs in terms of your ability to get the job. So if you're looking for employment at the end of your PhD, then I think the doctor in and of itself may not be a routine except for in academia, but the topic that you've done will be the routine. Has the thing that you've studied and thought about got, is it taking you on the road that you want to go down? You said that you noticed that most programs concentrate on conservation science, um, chemistry and physics, um, and to some extent they do. Um, I did do a little bit of research for, <laughs> for your question. And the American Institute of Conservation have identified in amongst their sort of um, this, this the employability study or the study of people who work in conservation, that basically whilst 70% of the um, profession have masters, um, fewer than 2% have PhDs. And in that tiny number in 2014, only 0.7% had PhDs in conservation, whereas a massive 1.6% had PhDs in other topics. So it seems that you're twice as likely to end up in conservation with a PhD outside of conservation. But we are talking very, very small numbers. So I don't think it's the most hugely relevant thing to do. Then your last question was, am I I looking in the right place? 
And I think this is the most interesting question. Because with any career, with any choice in life, with any fees that you pay or time that you spend, this is three, four, five years of your life that you're giving to something it has to be important to you. It has to mean something to you. It has to take you, it doesn't have to necessarily take you to a defined goal, but it has to take you somewhere that makes you happy, that gives you satisfaction, that scratches an itch, a place you want to go. So is it the right place? Are you looking in the right place? Only you can answer. Because very few people who end up tremendously successful knew where they were going in the first place knew exactly where they were going what they do is they pursue their dreams pursue their interests and above all I think we all want to have had happy and fulfilling lives so if you are doing a PhD to improve your chance of getting employment in practical conservation I'm not sure that it will have a huge impact based on the data but if you're doing a PhD because you've got questions you want to answer and that you really want to spend time thinking about them, then fantastic. Follow your dream. Because even if you don't end up exactly where you thought, I'm sure you will end up using the thinking and the time and the space that you created from doing your PhD. So I don't know if this answered your question. I guess my answer is always to everyone. Follow your dreams. Do the things that make you you, because that's the best way to spend your life. Over and out. If you're enjoying The C Word and would like to support our work, then please consider becoming one of our patrons. For as little as $1 per month, you can help us keep our episodes online and more of them coming. Patreon helps us meet our regular costs for the show, and also to plan ahead so we know roughly how much of a monthly budget we've got. That's super helpful when you're trying to do something special like buy a better microphone or save up to go to a special event. Your support also helps keep us free of advertisement. In return, our supporters get access to our archive of extended episodes, which you can only access on our Patreon page. Yeah, for that $1 a month, you get a little extra audio enjoyment. We've crunched the numbers, and it's about 10% extra content on a regular basis. That's not bad for less than a cup of coffee, eh? If supporting us sounds like something you'd like to do, then head over to patreon.com slash the C word and join our bunch of absolute champions. Patreon shout out! Welcome to our latest patron, Amanda. Thanks so much for joining us. And I was on comments, questions and corrections. First, we've got an email from Philip who says, firstly, thank you so much for uh, your work in making the podcast. I'm relatively new to it. I'm currently working my way through the past episodes. Very much enjoying it. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks, Phil. I restore furniture and other objects for a well-established company based in Stockwell. I've had 10 years experience in many aspects of restoration and the making of furniture. I have learned entirely at the bench and have no restoration woodwork or related qualifications. I've learned a lot from my colleagues, however, and I've found that more often than not, they're very set in their ways. This is why I find the forward-thinking progressive ideas in conservation very interesting. I wonder how easy it would be for someone like me to switch to a career in conservation. Perhaps this might make an interesting episode. Differences in restoration and conservation qualifications, transferable skills, crossover in techniques between the two and how we can learn from each other, etc., Looking forward to hearing from you. All the best, Phil. Ooh. Oh, thanks so much, Phil. Yeah, that's so really interesting. I think this is a really good one to talk about mm. in this episode because mm. obviously we've just talked about portfolios and how to get jobs. Yeah, and I just thought it was a good adjacent one. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so I wish I said I could say that it, this would be easy for you, but it's probably not going to be easy. <laughs> I think there is a really important place for people with traditional craft skills yeah. and that sort of thing. I totally do. 
Because I think that goes under equivalent experience when people ask for a degree. Yes. And in fact, you might be able to find that an, an employer agrees with that mm-hmm. and would employ you on the basis that you've got equivalent experience. Mm-hmm. They might then ask you to go on some additional training courses for more of a grounding in conservation. Mm-hmm. And they might be able to help you fund that if you're really lucky. Or it might be that people come back to you and say, you don't need a qualification in this because of your experience, but we would like you to go away and do some courses in conservation mm-hmm. maybe and the dreaded volunteering word comes mm-hmm. to mind where you might want to volunteer <laughs> with someone who is a conservator like just try to pick up some of those skills obviously you say that you already restore furniture and objects so you're already working in a restoration adjacent industry mm-hmm. but for say museum conservation there are slightly different rules that apply which you've probably gathered from listening to the show so it might be a good idea to brush up on those in some way that doesn't have to be a full-on degree course or anything i think because obviously i just think that it sounds like you have tons of experience already and it's more about reframing things like ethics and just getting to know how you work in a museum so i might look at some things like west dean courses maybe yeah that's what i was Um, thinking as well and there might be some just basic online webinars that you can take in like the basics of conservation and stuff like that even that on your cv might you know help you i think and it could help you be able to answer interview questions in a conservation friendly manner and i think you should also be honest with employers that if you want to go into conservation that you're willing to learn on the job etc and of course icon is also working on the apprenticeship scheme which might be an option eventually down the line Mm -hmm. because that's that's going to be good for people with a really practical background like yourself i'm trying to think of other things so I have one thought about this. That is, it's coming off the um, what Jenny's just said about um, the role of craft skills and those sorts of specific skills in conservation and in restoration as a as a sort of vocation as well. I know a lot of engineers, people who have started off as engineers or mechanics that work in conservation, and they are basically conservation mechanics or conservation engineers of big stuff and of mm. industrial machinery. I don't see why it should be different for things like furniture conservation Mm. because all different kinds of conservation is so different. I couldn't do furniture conservation, for example, because I'm not a woodworker. Yeah. So I don't, you know, there's so many different roles and skills that you can have and that you are that are useful that you know i don't see any problem with operating in the same way but within the framework of conservation that conservation ethics Mm. that isn't that difficult to learn and also i think it's worth saying that conservation ethics as a topic changes over the world and from person to person so much and just based simply on the things that people have done like i feel like from cardiff we had quite heavy conservation ethics that was quite you know present entirely in our con- in our education but i know that i've worked with people before that just either don't consider things or don't hold things with the same weight of value as i do and while we can say one thing is good or or less good i don't think that you know there is no right answer when it comes to conservation ethics because it's still an ongoing discipline in itself mm. so i suppose you know learning how to think in terms of conservation ethics, being more aware than less aware, um, always having that question mark above above everything you do is always a good 
first step to that and I know there are short courses there are short courses and there's conservation internships and if you were to join the icon furniture group that's always a good place to start good point yeah and then you can start communicating with people like that because maybe things like work placements or yeah simply working with a furniture conservator you know once a week as probably let's face it volunteering as you said already start relationships the big problem or one of the big problems within our profession in terms of uh, skill sharing is that concern with being seen as rubbish or being seen as like oh this person doesn't know the rules kind of thing mm. who is this person they don't know the rules but we we can't you know especially in ob- objects conservation I feel like I'm personally constantly thinking, are there rules to photograph conservation that I just don't know about? Are there <laughs> rules to this other type of conservation that I'm just not aware of because I haven't done a specific discipline degree? Mm. So I think the more cons- the more communication, the better, basically. Yeah. And there are things out there. So don't feel disheartened, though it might not be a totally easy road. It's just best to be open, isn't it? Yeah. And I think if you ask around, people might have more thoughts on it in in the furniture conservation kind of industry. And I think I think best of luck, really. Yeah, um, good luck. Yeah, I think there, interesting observations as well. Yeah, I think there is scope for it, and especially since you seem to think that conservation is uh, progressive and interesting, I think that there's totally a place for, place for you in the profession, and that Welcome. you will yeah, and that you will absorb those ideas you know like the the ones that we're talking about so good luck phil and next up we've got an email we've got an email from uh, johanna in germany uh, who says i'm a paper conservator working at a large museum for drawings and prints in germany we have a lot of lending going on i've had my permanent yay position for 20 Congratulations. months now. yeah and have already been on 17 courier trips Jesus in that time Christ. i shouldn't bless you, <laughs> oh my I can't do Lulz. any exclamation. Good luck. <laughs> wow. <laughs> of course, uh, sometimes things go wrong. Someone once dropped one of our drawings. Luckily, the actual object wasn't damaged, just a frame. Sometimes the hanging fixtures don't work. And uh, I myself once put an object in the wrong frame that didn't fit onto the stand that the Borough Museum had made, especially for this loan. I'd consider myself quite a chill person. And as Jenny said, I think it's one of the best ways to deal with things like that. Stay calm and professional. Try to make competent suggestions. You will eventually come up with a good solution together with the staff of the borrowing institution. Also, not everything that goes wrong is essentially bad. I once arrived in London with the loans just to learn that the exhibition space wasn't ready and they had postponed the installation by five days. I still don't know why they couldn't foresee this one uh, this one or two days earlier, uh, but it was the first time that I was in London and I got to stay in a nice hotel over the weekend, paid for by that museum, so I didn't complain. I've had a very stressful courier trip where I had only four hours of sleep ugh, or spent 12 hours on a truck. Oh ugh. my God. I once got sick on the the day before going home and found out that being on a plane when you have have a cold <laughs> hurts your ears terribly. Oh. I've done that. I did that with swine flu once. Do not oh, recommend. No. But all things considered, I absolutely love this part of my job and I wouldn't give it away for anything. Seeing Citrus that I wouldn't have traveled to in my own time and I've flown on a freighter from the USA to Germany. I was allowed to sit in the cockpit during the landing. Oh my God, that sounds amazing. Yeah, it does. And probably the most important thing, I love chatting with other conservators, usually to, uh, usually to find out that we're pretty much all in right. the same kind of guys with the same kind of problems. Right. That feels incredible. I love us. It's so good. 
that's really amazing. Thanks for sharing that, Joanna. Um, I'm sure loads of people out there feel feel the same way. I'm glad you enjoyed the couriering episode. And if anyone else has any experiences to let share with us, we would love to hear from you. Uh, you can reach us the usual ways, basically. So yeah, get in touch, guys. And thanks so much for writing in. Thanks for listening. With the C word, and you've been listening to Julia Jablonska, Christina Rosaic, Chloe Ramsey, and me, Jenny Mathiasen. Join us next time for an episode about touchy-feely things. In the meantime, check out our website at theseaword.cho, tweet us at theseawordpodcast, or simply email us on theseawordpodcast at gmail.com. The intro and outro music is Spring by Didi Music, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Additional music and sound effects by Callum Robertson. This has been a Wooden Dice production. Perfect. Uh, sorry, Fox is standing over us, um, twiddling with the um, sound. What's it? What's it called? They're knobs. They're knobs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was quick. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> that was a quick descent.